It's Bruce Blanket in for Jazz Joe Hall. Some stability may be returning to the Vancouver real estate market. Guess what? Too late for many millennials. And terrible news out of Edmonton today. Two police officers shot dead. Why and what now? Details ahead. Also, Canadians are warming up to capital punishment. A new survey backs that up. Have we seen housing prices bottom out now? Is that dip finally over? What do the very latest BC and Vancouver real estate numbers tell us? Our guest right now is Brian Yu. He's chief economist with uh, Central One Credit Union. Brian, uh, thanks so much for joining us. And I've got to ask you in terms of BC and Vancouver, both markets, what are we seeing with the latest numbers and what does it really tell us? Hi, uh, thanks for having me. Um, yeah, the latest numbers are, are a little bit better in terms of the overall sales flow and prices. We did see a, a pickup in overall sales in February by about 7%, also a little bit of an increase in provincial prices. Uh, but this also comes uh, across uh, after a, a pretty slow and um, big drop-off in January. So right now we're not reading too much into it. It does show that there is potentially some uh, support here in terms of pricing. Uh, we're also seeing very little inventory, uh, which is, again, providing uh, more support for some of the sellers out there in the market. Now, are people starting to read something into the interest rates when we're seeing this? Uh, do you think that's part of it? Do they believe that uh, we have seen uh, something that's going to be about as high as it gets? Yeah, I think that uh, many potential buyers are, are clearly, they're still priced out of the market in many cases, but they are looking ahead a little bit about the overall interest rate environment. Um, there has been some, of course, speculation that we could actually see some potential um, cuts to interest rates just due to what's happening uh, south of the border in terms of the U.S. banking sector. Um, but overall, right now, I think that we're still in the scenario that affordability is a key concern. There's still not a lot of product out there and prices are still high. So many of these uh, buyers are still on the sidelines. And that's something you talk about when it comes to, I guess, this notion of balanced conditions, insufficient supply. But uh, you did hint that there was a little bit of a change in that supply. Expand on that a bit. Yes. um, When we look at the overall numbers for new listings, um, they did come off in January. They actually fell, uh, sorry, in the February month. Um, They're about 30% below where they were even a year ago when we think when we look at this through um, some of the trends in the data and overall inventories also seem to be uh, slowing down a little bit more as well a lot of the potential sellers out there have seen prices drop from over the past year they're they're not in a situation where they actually have to sell um, and they're taking their time they're they're pulling their listings or they're not they're choosing not to list in the market right now and, and for a lot of buyers that, that does become a little bit more of a uh, of a fresh, uh, a little more frustrating as uh, supplies in the market, and we're seeing a little bit more potentially of that uh, bidding up of pricing or uh, just um, uh, giving more than they might have been uh, a couple of months ago. Talking with Brian Yu, Central One Credit Union. Brian, I know that when it comes to some of these uh, real estate pressures that have pushed prices up in the past, it has been a story of moving people out to other areas beyond Vancouver, those areas possibly being, well, the eastern parts of the Fraser Valley or the BC interior or perhaps other areas uh, in the country. What are we seeing now? Any changes, uh, anything that you're seeing or noting? Well, we did see during the pandemic a lot of movement into the into the Fraser Valley. We also saw a lot of price growth in areas like um, uh, Chilliwack, as well as in the, the Delta region. Um, similarly, we also saw quite a bit of movement into the island interior as well. Uh, when we look at you know, some of the, the challenges around affordability, what's happened is that individuals who are kind of seeking affordable, uh, more affordable housing, shelter in other parts of the area are still also being hit by the same uh, affordability shock of, the, of higher interest rates. Um, currently, what we're looking at is that given that population growth and immigration is it's quite a bit higher right now. Uh, some of the areas that are more likely um, to see some uh, pickup is probably in the in the core Metro Vancouver area. Although, again, all these other regions are still more affordable than than uh, the lower mainland. Um, but uh, until those interest rates start coming off more uh, significantly, I think it's going to take a little more time for uh, these areas to uh, see higher uh, volume. 
I know some of the talk around the coffee shops and around the kitchen table might be that uh, it's getting really not affordable to have a mortgage. Um, And that has been the case for many people in Vancouver and British Columbia, the whole province. Uh, Do we see any people selling because they no longer can't afford? Is that even factored into this market now? Well, I, I think there's always going to be individuals who um, maybe or the head in terms of payments uh, are seeing their variable rates go up, especially those who bought in the last year, essentially when we're looking at pricing, uh, high and low interest rates, which have now ballooned uh, due to um, uh, the uh, the rate hikes. Um, but for a lot of the a lot of the households out there who bought prior to the pandemic, who haven't been who really didn't make many moves, I think that for the most part, they're still fine. We're not seeing that move of a lot of panic per, uh, panic selling. When we look at the labor market, uh, overall unemployment is still unemployment rates are still very low. Um, there's still a lot of job growth in the economy as well. Um, so those are all providing a lot of support again for the uh, potential sellers and households that they don't really have to. Uh, to uh, put their homes on the market because of economic circumstances. Brian, I know a professional like you has certain data that they follow very closely. What's your advice for those of us who want to take our own crystal balls out and start to make some sort of predictions or even decisions? What factors, what numbers should we be watching closely? Well, I think first looking at the supply, uh, the inventory levels, and that has been the, the key support for the, the housing market. When we look at the fact that interest rates have soared over the course of the of the uh, of the last year, and sales have uh, declined um, largely more than half from peak levels and are, are below pre-pandemic levels. Um, so, if those inventory levels start to pick up, we start seeing more sell. That that's probably an indication that prices are going to are going to uh, come off further. Um, but the other one is just going to be interest rates. Uh, as interest rates um, are, are, we're very sensitive right now to where those rates are and. If they do come off uh, in the next uh, quarter or so, just due to what we're seeing in, in the financial markets, um, I think a lot of potential buyers could be finding themselves in a, a pretty opportune time to, to get something at a lower uh, at a lower payment. Well, interesting times ahead, and uh, thanks for taking your time to share some of your insights with us. Thank you very much. We were talking about whether we have actually found the bottom when it comes to residential real estate and the prices and inventory here in Vancouver and area. It looks like new numbers out, and we talked with Central One Credit Union's chief economist, Brian Yu, about this. The new numbers showing that there may be an end to the dip in prices and things may be turning around. Well, the question out of that is, is it too little, too late is it just a drop in the bucket, and does it really matter when it comes to all those potential buyers? You see, optimism in Vancouver's housing market really is divided when it comes to different generations. And this is backed up by a new survey by Mustel and Sotheby's International Realty Canada. To talk about this, we are joined by Don Kotick who's the president at Sotheby's Canada. Uh, Don, thanks so much for being with us. Uh, thanks, Bruce. Thanks for having me today. Uh, let's uh, not keep anybody on edge too much, uh, but we may have predicted this. Which group, age group is it, that really has lost the optimism when it comes to Vancouver real estate, and why? Well, it, it's it's interesting, Bruce, because I think we have to put everything into perspective. But I think I think let me first say that affordability is probably one of the most pressing concerns for pretty much every demographic in, in Vancouver right now. Um, and, and I know that there was the article that came out about the uh, the, the millennials. And uh, it's funny when you think of millennials, you, you, you actually you think of, you know, the younger generation. But it's actually the parents now is the age uh, 27 to 42. And, you know, one of the things is, uh, you know, I don't want to, you know, diminish things or, or anything like that. But our when we did this survey, we did this. It was uh, it was all across the country in all the major centers, and we looked at all the uh, the um, different demographics. And the, and the data for the millennials is actually it's actually not as bad as maybe that article had positioned things. Because when you, when you look at the the break the data down for the millennials, it actually said 
that 39% of the people of the millennials surveyed thought real estate in the next 12 months will perform the same or better. And, and then if you broke that down even further, the 39%, 16% said it would be better. 23% said it would be the same. 30% said it would be worth worse and 31 were undecided so the actually the the largest group was uh, the group that said it in in uh, you know in a year from now it's going to perform the same or better and the other thing bruce that we did is we projected out 10 years and this is where it gets really interesting because we basically had 33 percent said uh, it was going to be better. 26% said it would be the same. 14% said it was worse. And 27% were undecided. So if you project 10 years out, it actually looks more encouraging. And and I guess like I, I want to preface this by saying like affordability is is absolutely an issue. But this is just, you know, people's mindset in terms of real estate as an investment uh, before the pandemic. And then after the pandemic, one year and then 10 years out. So, Don, if you were to take a look at the numbers themselves, not the actual article, but the numbers, what is your mm-hmm. big uh, take back from it? The thing that you got coming out besides affordability, but when it comes to generations, what are we finding? Is there any sort of difference? Well, it was actually like the, the statistical kind of anomaly was actually um, there, there really wasn't a, a large difference in terms of the demographics. When we when we went all across the country, there wasn't a, a big difference even from the major centers. I mean, Montreal, you know, was probably a little more optimistic than the other markets, but they all pretty much came out the same. Um, you know, but I guess I guess the, the biggest thing, though, we you know we've been living through a decade um, shortage of inventory, and 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 that is impacting our affordability. So that's probably the the thing that really jumps out at you. And then if you take into account the the, the large um, immigration numbers that the federal government is bringing in, obviously that's going to put more pressure on the affordability issue. So at the end of the day, the only way to remedy this situation is is for all the different levels of the uh, government to align and undo some of this bureaucracy and, and start building. That's uh, pretty much the uh, the only solution to this, uh, you know, decade-long chronic problem that we have right across Canada, but definitely more pronounced in Vancouver. Okay, Don, uh, when we talk about building, and very quickly here, just for time, but uh, what should we be building then when it comes to uh, the way that uh, we see the future? And are we in a position now where we should rethink where people live. I grew up in a detached home. Um, that's not a reality, I think, for my son. Yeah, well, it's interesting. We we actually, before we did this study with Mostel Group, we actually did a study on the Gen Zs. Um, and, and the Gen Zs still have that aspiration to go for those detached homes. But I think... Um, you know, I think one thing that both of these studies have revealed is uh, home ownership is near and dear to Canadians' heart, even with the affordability issues. But in terms of what kind of uh, properties we need to build, I think we need to try and build, you know, properties at every, uh, you know, every position of the real estate spectrum. You know, that goes right from affordable houses to, you know, to maybe one-bedroom condominiums to three-bedroom condominiums to, you know, townhouses, and if if possible, detached. Like we really need, we really need a mix. Um, and not just one type of housing, because uh, it is a spectrum, and you need to allow people to move along that spectrum. And if you if people don't have a place to go, um, it's going to just tie up the inventory, and that's one of the things we're seeing right now. So I hope I answered your question. You Bruce. did, <laughs> Don. Thanks so much. Uh, mix and uh, there really is a spectrum. I appreciate your time. Well, a neighborhood in the north end of Edmonton is hit hard, to say the very least. After word today that two police officers were shot and killed, this after responding to a call of reported domestic violence at an apartment building, well, Global News reporter David Bowles has been doing an outstanding job following a very, very difficult story. David, more information has been coming in even as we speak, but what have we known to this point? Thanks, for, thanks very much, Bruce. So outside of what Chief Dale McPhee here in Edmonton said 
earlier. Not much. It was two officers uh, called out to an incident at an apartment building around 114th Ave, 132nd Street here in Edmonton. It's Inglewood area, north central Edmonton. And uh, from what we understand, Travis Jordan is one of the dead, 35-year-old, Eight and a half years with the Edmonton Police Service. Brett Ryan was 30 years old, five and a half years with the Edmonton Police Service. The call initially came in for service around 1247 in the morning. Uh, Chief Dale McPhee telling us earlier this morning that a male subject was dead, and that was believed to be from a self-inflicted gunshot wound. A domestic dispute, I guess, is what we would refer to it now as uh, these type of calls. Uh, Do you think they had any indication beforehand that the uh, person involved was armed? That hasn't been made clear the, uh, at this time. The only thing Chief McPhee said was it doesn't appear like the officers had the chance to withdraw their weapons, which, I mean, and it's it's obviously a tragedy. I mean, two young officers going in to a domestic dispute call, and, and as Chief McPhee said, it doesn't appear like they even had a chance to withdraw their weapons before um, getting to getting to the matter. This is the thing that surprises me. It's two officers going in, but no more than two. Quite often, domestic calls, they do have a lot of backup. Uh, do we know if there are other officers on the scene, but just not approaching at this point? Or is it too early to know any of those details? Um, from what we understand, Chief McPhee had mentioned uh, in his press conference this morning that there were officers around who did help transport the uh, the injured officers injured officers to, uh, to treatment and, and hospital, but uh, unfortunately they they did not make it. So, And there's still quite a big police presence here now, so it leads me to believe that there were other officers, but um, obviously it was the two in, uh, in, in both Officer Jordan and Officer Ryan who, who were shot and tragically killed. The two officers, uh, 30-year-old Constable Brett Ryan, 35-year-old Constable Travis Jordan, uh, one apparently was going to be a father, uh, what else do we know about them? Well, the one thing that I found, I think the one thing that's constructive is, is Edmonton's a very community, a very tight-knit community. Everyone here is, seems has a small-town feel for a big city, but everyone really does seem to know everyone. But a little while back, if I can maybe shine a light here on yeah. Officer Jordan, is that there was a story that came out a while back about an Edmonton police officer being called a snow angel. That was, that was Officer Jordan, as there was a woman around town who was a little while back, she thanked a police officer because, you know, she expected to get a ticket for not clearing the snow off her car, but Officer Jordan then came up, just cleaned the snow off her car, and sent her on her way. And she I means she was so grateful she had to find out who he was, and he ended up gifting her with a snow brush a little later. But that's that just kind of highlights the kind of I think that highlights what Officer Jordan was about. That story there and the work that he was involved in, and what and his his motivation for maybe even joining the force. What a tragic turn uh, for a story like that. How is the reaction right now? You're seeing you've come in contact with uh, many other members of the force. Uh, are they able to get counseling? Do they need counseling? I've spoken with about three or four police officers thus far, and they're not saying much right now. But I think the little interactions between them and the public does highlight what's going on. There was a lady passing by just as I was getting to the scene. She was quite emotional, obviously. It was, you know, she's lived in this community for years, she told me, and I just heard her say, thank you for everything you, that you do, my condolences. And, and you could see it's the little things. I just caught a glimpse of the officer's face, and a little a little smile did cross it. It just shows that, you know, this is a tragic time, obviously, for Edmonton and the Edmonton Police Service, but it's the little things that right now that made that, like that simple little thank you helping them through this incredibly difficult time. David, where do we go from here in terms of the community coming together to remember the officers? It's a tough one. So for context, Bruce, like a, um, I used to live in this area for, for about a year and a half when I first came to Edmonton. Yeah. And it's a very family-oriented community. Lots of schools, heart and buildings, very multicultural. Everyone I knew, everyone I came across and lived here always had a smile out on their face, you know, the dog walking general just generally nice but one of the i was talking with one lady earlier and she just said it it stunned her because she wouldn't have counted on this community but the one thing she did mention to me is she just hopes that right now people can just come together and and give their best for the police and and keep working harder to make make edmonton better because it's an absolute tragedy that no one would have ever foreseen coming to two police two young police officers to a call early on Thursday morning and losing their life. David, you have a job to do, but uh, 
You're also a member of the community. How are you holding up? Good question, Bruce. Um, it's a bit weird. Like, as a reporter, having an integrity to do my job. As a journalist, I, I want to make sure people's stories are told. But, I mean, I've lived in Edmonton for four years. And as mentioned, I lived here for a year and a half. It's in, in Inglewood for a year and a half. It's a weird feeling right now because I'm kind of battling that feeling of feeling just heartbroken for our city, our, our Edmonton Police Service, and our community. But I want to make sure that the, these people and their lives and their work is honored properly. And it's a it's an inter, it's it's a tough balance to strike. But I need I have a job to do, and it's just it's just what I got to do. Our federal minister of mental health and addictions is now hitting back at Pierre Polyev on Pierre Polyev's comments about Big Pharma's role in the opioid crisis and his intention to sue if he is elected prime minister. Now, Polyev made those comments earlier this week right here on the Jazz Joe Hall Show. Big Pharma corporations who caused the crisis in the first place. They flooded North America with Oxycontin and other opioids. They promised the medical systems in both Canada and the U.S. that these drugs were safe and non-addictive. Both of those things were lies, and they knew they were lying. So people got hooked on these opioids. They then moved up the ladder of severity to fentanyl. That has led to 30,000 Canadians losing their lives. And Tens of billions of dollars in costs to our health care. A poly of government will sue Big Pharma, recover these funds, and use the money to pay for the desperately needed recovery and treatment programs that will save the lives of our brothers and sisters. Now, Polyev is in Victoria tonight, uh, continuing his B.C. swing. And no doubt this evening he is going to be making or reiterating those same comments. But back to... Carolyn Bennett, the Minister of Mental Health and Addictions for this country, she has some strong reaction to what Pierre Polyev is saying and uh, believes that maybe some of this is not that terribly new. I think he's a bit behind the times because since 2018, we've been working with the province of British Columbia to do just that, um, that there is a class action that will be certified uh, later this year. Uh, we they changed the legislation to include Canada uh, as part of it. And uh, so, you know, 40 companies will are in the, the suit. Um, and actually, with the court approval, um, $150 million has already been settled with Purdue. So this is, uh, this is uh, an initiative with all the provinces and territories and the federal government that is well underway. When you take a look at his comments, though, at the heart of it is this connection between the big pharmaceutical companies and what we're seeing in the opioid uh, crisis in places like Vancouver and its downtown east side. Uh, Do you think there is that strong connection or is it something else? Well, I think that some of the the misleading um, information, particularly um, on products being less addictive or being able to be marketed to physicians and to patients that, that we, I think, working with colleges and uh, of, of physicians and pharmacists are working very hard to, to really better understand the appropriate use of, of uh, opioids, uh, uh, that, that it is a, the stewardship of the use of opioids, which uh, uh, I think we believe that some of the the companies um, did misrepresent uh, um, the safety um, and the risk of addiction. I had a conversation with an outreach worker on Tuesday, coffee with her, and she works on the downtown east side. And uh, many of the people that she interfaces with are addicted. And uh, the addictions now are only uh, fentanyl and meth. That's what they're primarily seeing. And she says uh, a lot of this has to do with a lack of mental health support. But this is something that we continue to hear year after year after year. What's going to make any other year different or any other approach different? And can we ever come closer to solving this problem that we're seeing on places like the downtown east side? The, that 
cost between substance use and, and mental illness is, is, is very real and that I think that we will only be able to come out the other side of this crisis um, dealing with both mental health and mental illness as well as substance use. But I don't think we can diminish um, the role that COVID, but particularly that the increasingly toxic drug supply um, that has led to the dependence on fentanyl. And so when you, when you look at people, you know, all across this country, rural, remote, I mean, even this morning at the Options Community Service Society, when, when 89% um, of the people with overdoses were in private homes, um, and so that from construction workers to people working in the, in the mining camps, that the people that we are losing because they're using alone and dying alone. And I think that's the kind of approaches that Mom's Stop the Harm and others are, are saying that we, we can't stereotype the people using drugs and, and that we have to really understand that this is a we problem. Uh, in the House of Commons, um, you know, the people that spoke about this, all oh, were speaking about a loved one that they'd had, uh, that they'd lost or that had become um, dependent uh, on drugs or alcohol to such a significant ex- extent or, to, or, you know, that they, they died or that their lives were changed forever. So I think we are, we want everybody to understand that, that, and I think what I'm hearing from the people working on the front lines, the debate, when it polarizes harm reduction, treatment, um, um, detox and withdrawal, is really getting in the way. But we need all of it. Um, and certainly that's what I heard this morning for the South Asian community to be able to say that medically supervised detox and withdrawal, home-based care, can actually bridge that 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 being able to think about coming off, um, you know, the substance that you're dependent on to be able to get to to recovery and that kind of hope means that we have to have a an approach of compassion, not judgment. You've been out in the suburbs, and there must be a reason for that. Tell me about that reason. Well, I think what here um, at you know we were just at the Option Community Service. Society and, and it, you know, in terms of dealing with the with the real toll being taken in the South Asian community, uh, you know, half of the the, you know, people were fathers. Forty three percent were working. The huge wait list for detox. The cultural barriers. For them to develop this innovative program where they will go out to the homes and and be able to help with medical supervision of the withdrawal for, for, uh, with their teams. This is, this is exciting. We've seen it in Winnipeg. Um, but again, for us to say this is, this is a bridge between harm reduction and treatment. And that, that's why polarizing those two things um, is, is, you know, really, really dangerous and gets in the way of us doing everything we need to help people and their families. Um, whether you're in you know, I think some of the, the, from the mining camps to the construction industry to, to forestry, that we are seeing so much of this epidemic of, of overdose and toxic drug supply coast to coast to coast in this country. And I think that the stereotype of the downtown east side is, is, is harmful us understanding what a pan-Canadian problem this is right now. When you take a look at the numbers, disproportionately, this is affecting men. Um, is that something that is a concern or being looked at, or is it something that uh, we're not even going to focus on? No, absolutely. And I think even in the numbers we were shown this morning at Options, you know, that this is uh, two-thirds men. Um, and, uh, and again, that there, there is a, um, a concern uh, that comes out of a lot of the construction industry, mining, that, that they are very worried that these people working in the trades are at very high risk. But there's also, you know, risk of, of you know, in terms of, of, of alcoholism and, and the 
the, the kinds of uh, um, almost more um, invisible addictions that families are dealing with uh, coast to coast to coast. And that's why this, it, this house call service of detox and withdrawal is so inspiring because we still have huge stigma, and particularly in, in certain communities. And for them to be able to get help with dignity and with their family support. Yeah, tell me about this house call approach. What is it? Yeah, we saw it in Winnipeg with a, um, a, a, a clinic with a K. Here it is that, um, and this is, you know, of the $100 million that were in, was in last year's budget on substance use um, and addiction, um, this program here in Surrey will be $2.5 million um, over 27 months that will um, work with Dr. Summers at SFU to be able to prove the efficacy of this program where, where health teams will go out to the home, will we'll assess the situation if people need um, the kind of, of medical supervision with, with whether it's Suboxone or uh, other medication to help them through that really difficult five, five days where they're at huge risk. Um, and, then, and then with excellent approach to either um, uh, other kinds of, uh, of treatment uh, approaches or, you know, as well as serious aftercare from a team of nurses, uh, doctors, uh, um, psychiatric nurses, uh, it actually, um, the teams go out to the homes and are able to help people. It means that the children aren't apprehended. It means that often people can, can continue to work from home. They don't have to quit their job. You know, the pandemic, we've heard many stories about uh, how it's taken a toll on many different businesses, uh, not to mention the effects on all of us uh, when it comes to our mental health and other things like our finances. But one of the things that's really evident right across North America is the impact on arts venues, arts and culture. And this is something that has been a very big struggle, especially when you're dealing with something that is so terribly big like the pandemic that lasted and is continuing, but uh, started back uh, all the way in uh, early 2020. Well, taking this right to home and to Vancouver and to the Mount Pleasant neighborhood, there is one venue, the Beaumont Studios, that has been struggling financially since 2019 and has run up against some real uh, financial challenges like real estate costs and financial pressures from the pandemic as a root cause behind what really is going to amount to a potential closure. The organization, which uh, runs the Beaumont Studios, supports about 100 artists and creators, and it saw its tax obligations rise by a whopping 20% in just three years' time. And although it subsidizes rents for its tenants, Beaumont has been falling short by around, oh, $5,000 each and every month, $5,000 out of around $40,000 a month for the total cost of operating. Hope I've captured that all, but to bring in uh, a little bit of an idea about the scope of what happens with the Beaumont Studios and some of the challenges, we've got Luke Summers, who's the operations director there. Luke, thanks for joining us. Oh, thanks so much for, for having me on the show. For the uninitiated, let's talk a little bit about what Beaumont is, and uh, then we'll get into some of the challenges. So for us that may not know, what is offered at Beaumont? Yeah, for, for sure. I mean, there's there's a lot of things going on at the Beaumont, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll be brief. So as you just mentioned, uh, we, uh, we're home to almost 100 artists and creatives um, in about 40 different private studios. That includes music producers, uh, filmmakers, artists, designers. Uh, we just had a wig maker move in a couple of weeks ago. Um, uh, we're also a radio station for the community. We have a boutique, um, an art gallery, uh, and we also have two, two performance venues. So there's, there's, there's a lot going on here all of the time. 
I love those artist spaces, and I've seen it done well in many cities uh, traveling around North America. Uh, some of the creativity where you go into maybe even one building and set up different studios and, uh, and work with it from there. Is that kind of the idea behind Beaumont Studios is to create kind of like an ecosystem of artists? I think that's I think that's a really accurate description. Yeah, uh, I mean uh, the Beaumont Studios was started uh, about 18 years ago from uh, our founder Jude's uh, wish to have a studio space of her own, and and what she really wanted to do was have a space where you know the artists and creators can cross pollinate and collaborate with each other, um, and just create this 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 amazing creative environment. Um, and uh, because there was nothing quite like what she wanted to do at the time, then, then, then the Beaumont Studios was born out of that idea um, and has since grown from, from one building to two buildings and expanded to the sort of position where we have all of these artists here and, and venues as well, like I, like I said. So it's, it's, it's exactly that. It's a place for, uh, it's a safe space for artists to, to call home and to create and to, to enjoy each other. And, 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 that, and that's really what the Beaumont is all about. Now, a space, uh, I guess, somewhat like this, or at least a concept like this, I see, I've seen work really well, is in Las Vegas, of all places. If you get away from the uh, lights and the glimmer, there is an old abandoned uh, hospital that's been taken over, and some of the spaces in there really are welcoming for various different artists. And as a tourist who wants to get away from the regular Vegas and see what the local arts community is doing, wow, this is quite something. Uh, mm-hmm. Do you reach out to tourists uh, in Vancouver that come to Vancouver? Is that part of it? Or is this simply kind of a gathering place for the artists themselves? I mean, I mean, primarily, primarily it's, it's a space for local artists. But, but of course, you know, it's, it's, it's a place for people that, that, that are out of town to come. We actually have a couple of uh, tour operators that include the Beaumont Studios as, as part of their, uh, of their walking tours. Um, and the reaction that we get from people outside of the, you know, people coming in from outside of Vancouver is always one of amazement because there's, there's, there's so few places that not only just have the artist spaces, but also have, um, you know, the boots, we have a boutique thrift store here. We can, when people walk around, they'll go upstairs and they see people making music or they can, all of, all of our, all of our artist spaces all have big windows. So as people walk around, you could really get a feel for exactly what's happening and what people are doing. So we're always really, really well received by, by people out of town. And I'm sure there's, you know, there's lots of places around the country and in other countries indeed that, that are like that, but, it, but, but, but there's not too many of them left in Vancouver. No, it's a cool stop, uh, especially if you're new to this uh, town uh, coming in as a tourist, I imagine you can take an Uber and go and visit it. You're in Mount Pleasant, right? That's correct. Yeah, we're in Mount Pleasant, right by the SkyTrain now. So, 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 yeah, it's absolutely a great place to to stop by and just take in just some of the amazing work that that, that our local creative scene uh, creates. Okay, now we're all enthusiastic, but um, talk to me about the challenges. What have you run up against? Uh, I mean, I mean, the Beaumont. You know, the, it's it's not a, it's not a story that's just singular to us. I mean, like many venues um, and art spaces and not-for-profits of the city in, in, in Vancouver, um, for many years, you know, prior to the pandemic, we've, we've been under, you know, a, a constant and unrelenting pressure um, due to the ever-increasing cost of, of living, which, of course, we're all familiar with uh, living in Vancouver. Um, but, and so while it's not entirely a new problem, and I think you, you kind of touched on it in, in your intro there, but the last couple of years with the pandemic and the restrictions that came with it just put us in this incredibly difficult financial position. Um, you know, and if, you know, one of the huge factors of that is, is, is things like the property tax, which, as you mentioned, we've seen massive increase over the last four years to the point you know, where we're paying north of $120,000 a year just, just in property taxes alone. It seems uh, really expensive when uh, you start to list out this price, and the number that I looked at was $40,000 a month. Is that right for operating? That's correct. Yeah, I think $42,000 a month is, 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 our, is, our, is our basic sort of rental property tax bundle that we have to pay. And that's, just, that's not just the property tax. There must be a lot of other things in there. That's, that's basically the, our, our, our rent and our property tax. And so, of course, on top of that, we have all sorts of other costs for operations and bills and utilities and whatnot. So but that 42000 is specifically just to get, just, just to get the rent and, and, and property taxes paid. 
And right now you're falling short. Where does the revenue come in uh, to uh, to hit that magic mark just to break it even? How do you uh, how do you hope to make money? So a, a big portion of my rent uh, is is covered by um, renting artist studios. Now you know we live, we we're not in the, the the cheapest neighborhood in Vancouver, that's for sure. But we do our very best to try and subsidize the cost of these rental spaces for our tenants, for our artists. So uh, a portion of a portion of our, our rent has always been covered by by the by by that um, uh, rental income. Uh, now the other half of it, and this is what made it so difficult, especially during the pandemic, comes from uh, revenues that we generate through hosting events, like hosting our own events, but in a lot of cases hosting um, uh, events from other artists and creators. Um, I mean, I think everybody is pretty familiar with 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 with, with, with the closures of venues in Vancouver. So there's not that many options for people to choose. Um, you know, unless you're talking like a thousand person venues, but for the venue of our size, like that, that makes up a big portion. And of course, when the pandemic hit, that, that whole revenue stream ended, you know, for, for, for a long time. Um, and so the, one of the big reasons aside from, you know, just the tax burdens that we have, uh, is, is, is that we, we just found ourselves in this position where a big portion of that revenue, we just simply could not generate. And of course, even even following on from from the pandemic and where we are now, and 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 you know, in an economy where people are pretty worried about the recession and stuff, like we're still seeing impacts um, on the way that our venue is attended and the amount of people that are renting it. So that's 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 become a very kind of volatile source of of, of, of revenue for us, whereas before it was a lot more steady. Event space is interesting, and I've talked with uh, many performers. Uh, that look for event space, and uh, it's widely available at certain sizes of audiences and not available at all when you get down to um, the smaller ones, I guess. Uh, what type of event space do you have there at the Beaumont? So, so we have two main event spaces plus kind of an outdoor space, but our, but, but our main event space is a, a hall that has a capacity of around about 225. Um, and, and and like you say, there, there's a there's quite a few options if you're talking about the, the large events. But 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 when it comes to like the one, two, three hundred person events, then then the, the options are just ever diminishing for, for for people to use. And so we have that one uh, two hundred person event, and then we also have a, an art gallery space, which we occasionally use for events as well. Um, which holds about 50, 60 people. So it's kind of like two very kind of different sectors, but two really really important ones. I mean. Uh, I was just actually just before this call, I just noticed that there is a walking tour to just cover um, venues that have been closed over the years, um, yeah. which is a really sad indictment because because if these kinds of venues are the ones that just are on mass being replaced uh, by condos, really. I mean, that's 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 the bulk of it. Yeah, performance space is uh, really a difficult uh, challenge, especially in a place like uh, Vancouver, where you have a very strong real estate market. Um, so you've got a shortage of money to operate right now. What are you doing about it? Uh, tell me about the uh, GoFundMe campaign. Yeah, absolutely. So we uh, we launched our GoFundMe campaign in earnest on, on, on Monday of this week. Um, and, and the reason we did that is because, you know, over the years, we've, we've, you know, aside from the artists that we have here now, we're probably close to having a thousand artists that have called this place home over our last 18 years. Tens of thousands of people have come to our events. And we, we think that the, that the Beaumont is, is a really important cornerstone of, of Vancouver's cultural community. And so, you know, we got to this point where, you know, we're going to keep fighting and we're going to find a way to stay open. And, and we just realized that now is the time just to reach out to the, to the community around us and say, come and support our GoFundMe campaign. Um, and not just to people that know the Beaumont too, but really for anyone that has a, a vested interest in the health of our, of our cultural scene here in Vancouver. Um, and so uh, since Monday, um, we're really, really happy. We've, we've seen a huge influx of support. You know, we're grateful for, for people like yourself to, 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 to chat with us as well and, and, and raise that awareness. But I think we're over $17,500 raised in, in just a few days, which is really heartwarming. And what's the goal? Uh, our goal, our first goal is to get to $42,000 because it was kind of representative of, of, of you know, our month's rent. Um, and what we're really trying to do is, 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 
is get us back into a position where we're on firm financial footing. And so we're not just falling behind. And, and we feel that if we can get to that goal, and, and I feel confident that we will, um, that we'll be back in a place where, where, where we can start thinking about more long-term plans and, you know, what is the future of the Beaumont over a course of years and, you know, and how do we keep growing in, in an ever-changing market? And so that's, that's our first goal to get there. And, and, I'm, and I'm so happy that, that, you know, that we're getting to the halfway point already. It's been, it's been amazing. Luke Summers, uh, thank you so much. If people want to uh, help out, uh, is there an easy website to go to uh, that's not the GoFundMe website, but just uh, to find out a little bit more about Beaumont Studios? Yeah, absolutely. You can check out our, our, our website. It's just uh, the, the BeaumontStudios.com. Uh, and you can also find a link to the GoFundMe there. But as well, you can see some of the many events that we have coming up and, and look at the directory of all the different artists and creatives that that, that, that call this place home. And so it's a great place to start if you want to get yourself more familiar with, with what we do here. Best of luck to you. And uh, we're going to be looking forward to your success, Luke Summers. Thanks so much for your time. And there is a story in the Globe and Mail from this morning that's still ruffling feathers. And there is reaction coming out even as we speak. And it's all to this. The headline, China's Vancouver consulate interfered in 2022 municipal election, meaning the city election, and this in the headline, according to CSIS. It's not just that it's made up by the Globe and Mail, but the Globe and Mail is certainly under fire because some of the reaction coming in already from Vancouver Mayor Ken, Ken Sim, he's denounced what he says are insinuations made in the article by Canada's spy agency, well, they're more than insinuations. They're outlined, and the Globe and Mail had a good look at this. Well, let's uh, talk to one of three people who worked on this story. Nathan Vanderclip is an international correspondent with the Globe and Mail. He's also a former Beijing bureau chief for the Globe, so he certainly knows his stuff when it comes to this. And he joins us now. Nathan, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me. Uh, outline to us what CSIS is basically saying from what we know. Well, it's a report that's a snapshot in time from uh, 2021, and it reports on uh, some of the ambitions at that time from the person who was the Consul General for China in Vancouver, Tung Xiaoling, and says uh, with regards to the 2022 City of Vancouver mayoral election, uh, Consul General Pong said they needed to do all they could to increase the ethnic voting percentage, get all eligible voters to come out and elect a specific Chinese-Canadian candidate. So it's a description of an ambition by the Chinese mission here in Vancouver uh, to promote certain candidates. The name of those candidates, there is not, there's, there, it does not appear in the documents. There is no insinuation in the documents that those candidates played ball. This is merely a description of what China, the Chinese representative here in Vancouver, uh, was working on. And there's also a suggestion that they wanted to assess someone for potential grooming as a candidate who could then go on to higher levels of office. But again, um, you know, you reference uh, the mayor's uh, comments today. Um, I, I think it's quite clear that this document describes uh, not the conduct of candidates, but the conduct of the Chinese consulate general. And that conduct, uh, when we take a look at it, some might say, well, it is simply campaigning, I guess, by a foreign power. Um, but CSIS is looking at this, which means it could be a lot more serious. Uh, is this something that would likely, if uh, proven to be true, result in some sort of action uh, by our federal government? Uh, it wouldn't be charges, because how do you charge a government? What would it end up in? What's the call to action here? Well, we, we heard from uh, former Mayor Kennedy Stewart, who suggested this is the sort of thing that um, should uh, have led to expulsions and, and this sort of thing. This, this is one of the tools that the Canadian government has at its disposal with regard to foreign representatives. Um, but there's clearly evidence that has been gathered here uh, by CSIS, and we don't have any evidence that that, uh, that what CSIS uncovered led to any changes. And I think that's going to be uh, part of the conversation going forward. One of the comments that was made by the mayor, Mayor Sim, Vancouver's first mayor of Chinese descent, uh, made to the CBC, says, I'll just say it, if I was a Caucasian male, we would not be having this conversation. Hmm. 
Um, what do you think of that? I mean, the mayor is, well, is welcome to his comments. I, I'm not uh, the, the, the thesis documents, um, which I referenced, make reference to um, sort of um, bringing out uh, sort of an ethnic vote in support of certain candidates, but don't reference who that is. Um, and so it's, it, we, we're basing our reporting based on what thesis has said and, and thesis has used. Um, it has, it, the thesis reporting suggests that, uh, that the Chinese consulate was interested in, in certain candidates. But again, they don't name who those, who those are. No, they don't. Uh, they do outline a lot uh, here, and we do know that one candidate was successful in winning, uh, but they don't actually name Mr. Sim. So when we take a look at what is in here, and we've got this document now from CSIS, what is the next logical step if this document is to do anything more than simply exist? Well, I mean, we, we saw already today more calls from Ottawa, from opposition members, that it's it's time for something more than a special rapporteur. It's, it's time for sort of a, a more intensive investigation and look at this. We saw that also from um, some members, at least one member uh, on uh, the current city council, Lenny Joe, who said he's 100% in support of moving forward with, with some sort of investigation. Um, um, and so we'll see what takes place. But, it, but it's, you know, this is something that the foreign, uh, that the federal government is dealing with, that the prime minister's office is um, trying to stick handle its way through. At this point in time, they have uh, resisted calls for sort of a an inquiry, um, something that might be more open, something that might be more wide. Clear, it's clear the calls for that are, are increasing. Now, this is also something that is, as you point out, uh, being handled at the federal level by the rapporteur. But um, is the scope of that federal handling also going to include not just Vancouver, but any civic politics? Well, I, I think this document suggests that that's going to need to happen. And I think we'll, we'll have to see. We don't yet have um, the mandate letter from the federal government to the special rapporteur who was just named yesterday, former Governor General David Johnston. And so it will be interesting to see what is involved in that scope. But it, it, the, what, what CSIS is reporting in terms of uh, what was happening here in Vancouver w- would seem to suggest that anything that was looking at foreign or Chinese interference in Canadian elections should, should be looking at uh, levels of elections that go far beyond uh, the federal. Well, more to come, and this story is certainly going to play out. Uh, Nathan, thanks so much for spending time with us and outlining your reporting so far. Thank you. for listening to the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to the show on Apple or Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. You can always listen to the Jazz Joe Hall Show live Monday to Friday from 3 to 6 p.m. on 980 CKNW and connect with me on Twitter at Jazz Joe Hall BC. Talk to you next time.